0: And we are live with our 217th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law. At Seth Law I'm sorry, X. Uh Seth, say hi. <laughs> hey everyone.
1: Also uh at Seth Law on Mastodon, what? InfoSec.exchange, I think it is. I can't remember, right? Nowadays, the socials are all over the place, but welcome back to another episode. We're super excited to have Shlomi back on the show this afternoon, evening, morning, whatever it is for whoever is listening that's out there. Um, just a couple of announcements as we run into it. Uh, If you are going to be at Texas Cyber Summit, um, we'd love to have you participate in the pre-conference training with us for practical secure code review. We've got some updates that we're pushing through the course related to all the discussions around machine learning and LLMs and new stuff that we have been experimenting with, Um, just ways to speed up the secure code review process, Um, some of the manual Things are getting easier just based on the tools that are available. So uh, if you're gonna be there, consider us for that. Um, Or the other opportunity is again, the DEF CON training in uh, the Seattle area later in the year. I think it's um, November 1st and 2nd up in Seattle or in Bellevue. Uh, I'll post that that link here shortly as well um and let me think what else uh ken do we want to jump into the ctf for next week as well
0: yeah we should mention that um i do have a sign up link that we can share and i mean we we both have this uh link that we can share here which i will do in a moment or we can both do anyways um so next wednesday at 6 p.m eastern we're hosting a challenge with uh, SecDim. So we're going to kind of walk through how to use that platform. Uh, and then we're gonna show you kind of like, uh, essentially we're gonna go through the process of doing the CTF alongside uh, you viewers. So if you're kind of newer to it, that might be helpful to you. Uh, if you're maybe more advanced, maybe you'll just hop on over to the actual challenges and get going. Um, We're gonna well, we'll talk about all the swag and and the prizes and and all of that um, in more detail. So more information to 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 come. But uh, essentially, if you have time next week, spend a couple hours with us doing this challenge, Um, and then uh, the challenge should run for a few days after that too. So it's not like you have to do it just within the two hours. It is a both find the vulnerability and once you've found the vulnerability, fix the vulnerability as well um, type of CTF. We're going to we have we have a plethora of languages. I'm not going to tell you all of them. There's some interesting ones. There's some interesting, not just languages, but also uh, technology stacks that, uh, yeah, you know, you're going to get a chance to play with. It's really cool. I'm excited about it. So, uh, and I know Seth is as well. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, yeah, let me get this link yeah. going for folks.
1: Yeah, drop the link in there. Um, the The interesting there with the, the Sectim platform, and we had Pedram on a few weeks ago, um, talking about SecDAM and security training for developers and security people, security engineers in general. But the interesting thing there is that Ken and I at a previous uh, company actually built a platform that was very similar Similar ideas about um, finding and fixing vulnerabilities in code and then posting it back up using GitHub and actions and everything like that. Um, but it wasn't as, as refined as what we're seeing with SecDAM. So we're excited to actually exercise that. And play with it, see how it's actually see how it's been implemented, and how the team over at Sectim is doing something that is fairly effective in learning how to deal with these vulnerabilities, especially with very specific frameworks and languages. So, um, yeah, join us next week. That'll be the thirteenth of September, um, starting at six PM Eastern, three PM Pacific. And it'll run for at least, um, I think we're going to run it for at least a week before we do announce prizes and everything else. And we may release challenges as we go, depending on how people do within the within the event. Um, cool. All right. Well, with that, again, we're going to introduce Shlomi and um, get into security tools and what you're seeing in the industry. Uh, Shlomi worked with Ken at... Uh, Yeah, worked with Ken at GitHub in a previous life, right? Um, And yeah, for those of you that don't remember um, or didn't listen to the previous previous episode with Shlomi, uh, Shlomi, do you just want to introduce yourself really quick, what you're doing over at GitHub, and then we'll launch into it from there.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, and we were we were just talking about it. I think a little bit earlier, but I can't believe it's been you know like it's only been March. To me, it felt like uh, it's it was almost a year ago since mm-hmm. we <laughs> we spoke. And so um, I'm Shlomi. I lead the application security business unit in um, in Asia Pacific, and um, I've been with GitHub for about two years. But before that, I've been with um, HP or Fortify. Actually, before even the acquisition for about almost seven years. And so it was really interesting for me personally to see kind of like where the industry was um, around 2009, 2010 was really early days, at least in Asia Pacific. I think even in the US um, when I was following a lot of customers were just on their kind of the early journey of application security. Um, And now I think there's there's a lot more interest and focus on it, but um, it's funny because some of the challenges are exactly the same <laughs> it's the same things that we dealt with ten years ago uh, but seem to be seem to be haunting us so, still yeah,
1: so along those lines what what are those challenges that you're seeing i, I you know i I have a talk that i have been Giving, I've given a couple times recently, which is like this this idea of old school uh, vulnerabilities, like how they manifest nowadays, and what I've seen over my career. So I'm interested to see what what the challenges are that you have seen from fortified days that you're still seeing now.
2: I, th- I think, Just I mean, yeah. So so I think in general, kind of like the the this it's the same challenges. Some of them have shifted a little bit, like the maturity, kind of like have shifted a little bit. So I'm seeing if if. Um, about 10 or even 13 years ago, you would see very little customers that kind of were thinking about creating a security gate or even empowering the engineering team to actually do their own security. Now it's a lot more common. So a lot more people are thinking, you know, whatever the buzzword is, shift left, etc., <laughs> about how to do it. Um, so it's it's encouraging to see that a lot more people are actually looking at it. But the challenges are still, I think, very fundamental where if you think about it engineers have really one goal which is i guess to to deliver features and functions on time on budget like the best features they want to get the best out there and they want to do it in a fast way and then security obviously want the same thing but they want to keep it safe and so they kind of have to slow down and so it's it's always you know you need to i think a lot of organizations are trying to find how to balance the, you know, b- between going really fast but doing it in a safe way, and and that is always going to be a challenge. I mean, from a goal perspective. Um, so that that I think one thing. Um, the other thing is I think just knowledge. Like, how do you scale application security knowledge across all the engineering team? And. It's okay if you have a static engineering team that have a hundred developers and they're there for three years. Great, you can train them, but that's not the case. A lot of people are coming, they're going, you're using external parties. And so often I think a lot of customers are struggling with, you know, training that they did. I think I can't stress how important it is to do security awareness and training, but often a lot of people are finding it really hard to, to scale it. And, and do it in a way that is consistent, that is um, I guess effective because the people are just coming and going and so how do you make sure that those people are, know what they should be doing? And I think generally, uh, I've seen engineers definitely want to do the right thing. like if you if you allow them to do it in an easy way, they'll do it. Uh, but a lot of times we just you know add up a lot of friction, a lot of processes that are unnecessary and then um, I think I said it last time, um, whether you—it's funny—it's like that—that that applies to anything in security, to be honest. If you put too many controls that are too many too restrictive, people will find a way around it. People are like kind of like water; that they'll find a way around it. And so, whether it's DLP, <laughs> where you're trying to block everything coming out of your machines, they're gonna find a way. I mean, if you think about it, like a pen and paper is the easiest way <laughs> to circumvent DLP. And yet we're trying to complicate things, and so I think we just need to change a bit of, of the mindset around security to trust people that they are going to do the right thing, but give mm-hmm. them a way to do it in an easy way. So that that's that's unrelated to tools, and there's some challenges around, I guess, tools, but we can get to that a bit later as well.
1: Yeah, I I mean in in general, and I, I do think we you know we we spent some time discussing kind of the the security versus engineering battles, quote-unquote, or, you know, antagonism that exists just um, from a, you know, speed of delivery versus, um, you know, securing of assets as they go out the door uh, last time around, right? Um, I, I don't think it, it gets any better. Yeah, I mean, the more tools that we introduce, and, and like, I'm not sure what you're seeing as you implement some of those tools or you help organizations do that. Um but I do still see quite a bit of pushback um, because of the business needs, the business requirements, even from the developers that are trying to do things or want to do things securely, um, because they're not they're not necessarily paid for security; they're paid for features,
2: right? Correct. Um,
1: I, I have not
2: yet seen any project manager that basically gets you know, their milestones or payments or, or any contractor that says, oh, if you do the most secure application, we're going to pay you extra bonus. It, it just doesn't happen. It's always about like, can we get to market on time, on budget? I mean, I've seen uh, relatively early days, actually in the Fortify days, um, initially, it was really difficult to actually convince people to even do static analysis. And so we had a specific bank a fairly large one that had probably about three thousand developers. I mean, large for 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 in scale of, I think Australia. Of, of course, they're not, they're not the biggest, but um, it was very uh, sobering for me. I think to see it. And and initially, they didn't want to adopt the tool. They didn't even know really kind of that they want to do static analysis. And so we provided it almost like a service, like a code review um, uh, service. And we came in and we did that on a project that was a third party application and it it came in kind of from a third party. the procurement team already bought that third party, so it was way too late and they were in the final days of basically basically their goal live was next week and we're doing a pen test with a code review and we're sitting down in <laughs> in the meeting with the application security team uh, ourselves as the kind of the testers and uh, and the business unit. And essentially, we're telling them, look, guys, you honestly, like you have some really critical stuff from a security perspective. We would not recommend you to to go live with this until you fix it. And they're sitting there saying, great, but what can we do about it now? It's not even our code. It's actually a vendor's code. So we can't even, you know, it's it's too late. And so I think at that point, they had a decision. Do they go live or do they basically cancel the project or, or at least delay it? And when you look at the risk, um, yes, there's a risk from a cybersecurity point of view. But for them, if they did not go live, they would basically um, avoid or basically not get any revenue in the magnitude of about I think it was like two and a half million a year a day. <laughs> so then, they could, then you sit there and you say, well, what do we do? Do we basically stop this project, or do we go live and we take the risk? And guess what happens? Every almost mm-hmm. every single time, they take the risk. And do you mm-hmm. think? They, back and fix it afterwards maybe but it's (laughs) going to take time Um, yeah so that that's i think that's most of the challenge that that i'm seeing so a lot of people are just taking the kind of taking the risk and then it builds up later on so yeah that's but if if you gave the developers and the the vendors a way to do it early i'm sure they would do it
1: (laughs) well and i mean to be fair right like that's the that 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 is the the crux, right? Like if you gave them the time, if you gave them the incentive to do it, or not even the incentive, the time. No one wants to to produce insecure code and insecure products, right? Like most of them have quite you know quite a bit of pride in their craft, um, especially as you get in, into those senior leaders, senior developer positions. Uh, they pride themselves on what they're able to accomplish and able to produce. Um, which is, you know, part of the the reason that Ken and I always talk about, like, be careful with the language that you use when you find vulnerabilities, when you find these issues, because, uh, you know, when you come in, you know, hey, you know, and you're so proud because you found a SQL injection or whatever, found a, you know, a critical vulnerability in their code, somebody's blood, sweat and tears went into actually building that. Um, yeah. And if they're in the room, all you're doing is you're you're creating a... Uh, an environment that is not conducive to actually working with developers, right, that, or working with those people. So,
2: yeah, well, you, you're calling their baby ugly, right? Yeah, so, no one wants to know, no one wants to hear that. And so, I think I think if you give, uh, however, exactly what you said, like what we've seen, which was really interesting. So, we've we've had <clears throat> we've had actually a research around uh, secret scanning. So. In GitHub, you can apply secret scanning, and then you can, you can basically scan your repos for any particular API keys or secrets, and you can also block it. <clears throat> and uh, a relatively new feature that we introduced is called push protection. And and that allows you to basically protect from any secrets coming and being pushed into your Git repo. And, and there's, there's a lot of issues, obviously, with with secrets in your repo, because once they're in, It's almost like an oil lick. It's very hard to get it out of the Git history. And so it it becomes really difficult. And also uh, the question comes up around, well, what is this API key doing and who else is using it? We can't just rotate it or revoke it. We have to figure out what else there is. And so everyone knew though, that they shouldn't do it. A lot of developers know that they shouldn't be doing hard coded uh, passwords in their code. And when they were, what was interesting though is when we did the research and we applied push protection for customers, we saw initially that a lot of people basically circumvented it initially and didn't really um, kind of fix it. And so that that puzzled us because we said, you know, like maybe before they didn't know that they're doing it, but now we're telling them that they're about to kind of introduce a hard coded API key to their AWS and they're still doing it. What is, What's, what's going on here and so when we started asking those developers why did they circumvent it and, and why did they not fix it they just simply most of them said that they did not know how they should actually do it in the right way so they knew that that's not the right way but they didn't know what is the right process like what well, what is the key vault that they need to use and what's the organization is expecting them to do and when we added some information there so some organizations have added information about well you're about to introduce a secret, but here is the way for you to build it in a safe way. Um, almost 80% of them fixed it at that point in time. So that was, that was incredible. And so that, that proves that people will do the right thing if you give them, you tell them, look, you're about to make a mistake. So you're not, you're not calling their baby ugly. You're telling them, hey, just, just so you know, you're about to swerve out of the, the lane. And uh, this is, by the way, how you should do it in the right way. People will do the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, and, and I know that was always the impressive thing. And you know, Ken, I'm talking a lot. I haven't let you ask any questions, but that was one of the things that we were always impressed by with the Netflix product security team was the guidelines that you know the fact that they were enabling developers to do things in a secure manner. Um, and it sounds like some of the new tools coming out of GitHub that you're like working with. Um, clients on and even Ken, what you're doing over at dry run is more about that knowledge base of how to how to do things in a secure manner and giving the developers that knowledge so that they can jump on it sooner rather than hey guess what you pushed this you know this secret to you know github or to your git instance and we found it when you were deploying to production guess what it's already there good luck right like that you know yeah. I, I mean, I like that idea. I, it, it It is this, like, further pushing left, you know, concept, um, but with the knowledge base, not just with, the, like, the, the vulnerability detection or secrets detection or whatever it is you're building in.
2: Yeah, I mean, what we see is, like, many people are trying to shift left. It's, again, it's a new buzzword, but they're doing it in a way that just overloads the developers. They're just giving them here's another thousand vulnerabilities and here's more stuff that you need to do instead of actually keeping it very practical. So there's there's really a balance to when you do the testing and what sort of information you give the developers to not overload them and keep it pragmatic for them and usable because you give them too much information that is is not usable and they're they're just, again, they're gonna ignore it eventually. It's gonna be noise. And that I think is a really, really difficult problem Um, I think you know, Ken. Ken, you and I kind of talked about it. I think a while ago, before you even started Dry Run, um, that um, yeah, everyone knows that you need to shift left. Then there's a lot of economical reason why you should do it, and then less rework. That you, I don't need to explain to people why they should do that, but often they they're saying, "Well, cool," but what happens is. Shifting left doesn't mean you have to throw all these like cool results on the developers and then expect them to kind of do magic with it because you're, you're overloading them and you forget that again, their main priority is get features out the door on time. So the question is how do you manage it like the, the right way? And I think for almost 10 to 12 years, things haven't changed to be honest. Like if you look at the <laughs> first quadrant again, uh, where Fortify was the the only one there. Maybe there was um, Alts Labs. Actually, was kind of the second one there. <clears throat> and then they were bought by IBM. Fortify was bought by HP. Um, but largely, there was a lot of talk about developer first <laughs> application security tools. Uh, but you know, talk is cheap. It's not. It's not as easy to to do. And so, largely, we haven't really changed much. Apart from the fact that the velocity of, of development has, has increased, so that, that became, obviously, another, another add-on on top of it. <clears throat> but um, I think one, one of the other things that I wanted to kind of mention is around the challenges. So I still think that the biggest challenges is still around kind of, you know, people in terms of like the goals of the, the different goals of security and engineering and also uh, the amount, how do you scale the knowledge? But then from a tooling perspective, the biggest challenge that we see, I guess, three challenges. And in fact, you can apply those challenges to almost any other cybersecurity domain, whether it is SOC, whether it is DLP, whether it's network security. Um, There's really three things that I've seen kind of in the last three, uh, probably 13 years almost, where one, just customers often tend to buy more tools, and then try and figure out how to kind of integrate it. And so they spend a lot of effort and time on integrating all these tools and making sense out of them. And then the people that need to use it have to go through multiple tools and, and they have to go through multiple dashboards. And so that just becomes very difficult for people. Like the user experience is very difficult. And so um, again, that, that reduces the chance of people even acting on the information you give them. And the second one is that if you think about every sing, almost every single security tool out there, whether it's again your scene, your DLP, et cetera, all of them they raise a lot of alerts. It's kind of like telling you, hey, you have a headache, you have another headache, you have another headache, but not giving you, you know, any kind of aspirin or something like that to, to alleviate it. And so I think a lot of the security tools have to start focusing on rather than just telling you that you have a headache, to to helping you remediate it. And and I see a lot of changes in the tools nowadays, and a lot of focus on that to, to help people remediate stuff, as opposed to just telling you that you have a problem.
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean it's oh, nice you speaking to my see. language? Yeah. I I know that was always a big complaint that we had with even uh, you know even the static analysis tools, but a lot of even I any mean, like pen testing reports, like um, code review reports, whatever it was, right? Like vulnerability finding reports was the recommendations were always so generic. Um, And if like, even nowadays, if you look at what comes out of Dask, like any of the static or the code, the dynamic scanners, it is so generic as far as like, hey, from a code perspective, you need to, you know, yeah, you need to do input validation and, you know, HTML code checks or whatever it is for, you know, for cross-site scripting, but it's not like very specific to, uh, it's not helpful to a developer. It's a headache that they have to go then follow and figure out how they implement that in the framework, in the language that they're currently using with the specific versions. And there's no, again, there's no guidelines that are out there presented by the tools in general. Right. Um, But, you know, Ken, like that article that you just posted is pretty, uh, um, apropos, I guess, to that sort of a discussion, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some key points in it that I think um, you know, the key major takeaway that I like from this is like, why good enough might be better than perfect, and the things that I mean, they talk about hard-coded secrets and source code, by the way, but I think like really the things that matter and really hit on some of the things you're talking about are developer ease of use, so that's like an easier product integration, so like I think of those is actually somewhat of the same, right? Being integrated into where they work, similar to how, I mean, not similar, like GitHub Advanced Security is a perfect example of that, building tooling into the actual product that developers are living in all day long. Um, So that's great. Um, automating, Automating and orchestrating security tooling in the SDLC. Absolutely. I think that's one of the, we've talked about it a lot lately, but I think one of the hardest things is like, yeah, you put an app online, it goes through a review and then what happens after that? Like that's not, it's not an SDLC if you don't have like an after that. If you can't measure each of your services health based off of their security risks slash other risks, that's not an SDLC. And then um, the last point is probably the most important one here, which is assisting with vulnerability rem- remediation. And I 100% agree with you, Shlomi. As we've been talking to customers, one of the things we built, I can't even talk about some of it. I really want to, Soon I will be able to. But one of the things we kept coming across with people was a situation where, um, yeah, they're like, well, I'll create, um, it's going to produce noise and someone's got to do something about it. At scale, how does that work? So then we had to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to make that work. There is a way to make that work. But ultimately, it comes down to exactly what you said in the very beginning of the podcast, knowledge sharing. That's really all it is now. I can't get, I wish I could get into more there, but I think that uh, knowledge Capturing the depth and breadth of knowledge apps that community has, um, and then being able to supply that back is uh, to help actually get those things remediated without having to lean on your security team. Like that's where it's at. So anyways, everything you're saying is music to my ears. I think it's realistic. And also I just want to go back to that, why good enough might be better than perfect. I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Static analysis tools, no matter how great they are, they're not perfect and they're rarely very accurate. And d- d- dynamic is the same, right? Like you might get lucky that you might have some good results. Most of the time though, it's, it's not perfect. Or not most of the time. I mean, it's never perfect. I think the closest we ever saw was breakman. I and there was a very re- good reason why breaking was accurate, but even then not perfect. Right. So what do you do then? I think you focus on the good enough, those things that are like the important bullet points that are actual pain points for people every single day and what they do which I, again, I'm going to hand it back over to you, Shlomi, because I think that's kind of what you've been trying to preach um, or evangelize or however you want to say it to folks about the, you know, about not just get advanced security, but yeah, like how to run an efficient development process in a secure manner. Yeah, and, and
2: I think you're, it's, it's basically, it's knowledge sharing. So think about it this way, like, that really, if I kind of um, make, I guess, uh, and an, um, I'm trying to kind of like maybe find or quantify the essence of the problem here is that we really need to try and find a way with the tooling to move from just overloading people with a lot of information at the wrong time to the wrong people <laughs> to going and changing that to a point where we can get fairly good signal to noise ratio and get that signal to the right people at the right time and i think that is that is kind of like the, the the crux of i think the problem here and and we're seeing a lot of kind of people are saying well you know like for example when i talk to a lot of customers and and i can see straight away like from the first conversation that we have If they go and ask me, like, okay, well, tell me how many vulnerabilities can you find and how many, you know, like how many frameworks and how many languages and all this kind of stuff, it's often starting at that. But the ones that are more mature are not starting with like, okay, well, we want to make sure that you can find all the vulnerabilities. They focus more on the user experience. Like, how is the process going to work when you find something? How do we validate that it's a real thing and it's not, you know, just noise? And then, how do we bring it to the developers at the right time and allow the security and the developers to collaborate and, and communicate more effectively? That that really is kind of more important. Uh, and then, if we can even give them information or even remediate it for them automatically via introducing you know certain libraries that they should use upfront instead of actually fixing it after the fact, then then we are actually really making it a lot easier because we're not expecting the developer to do the heavy lifting. We're doing the heavy lifting for them and we're giving them the information to do. So we're making it easy for them to to do that. I think that's really important. And um, one thing that I, I will say, I think as an application security professional, or even to be honest, even as a general security professional, we, we always focus on sometimes, that, not always, but a lot of people kind of figured it out recently. But at least in the early days, the focus was on the technology. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but I think a lot of the work is about how do we communicate, like the communication skills. How do we sell it back to the business? How do we talk to people so that we don't tell them that their baby is ugly, but we kind of help them really realize what, what the implications are. And what are the, basically, ultimately, it's their choice. You know, like, as a security person, I can only recommend what you should do, but I'm not going to change it for you. And if you decide to take the risk because it makes business sense, go for it. But these Mm -hmm. are the consequences and uh, these are the trade-offs. But often when you talk to people like that and you give them that kind of information, then they'll ask, okay, well, what would you recommend? And then we need to give them kind of actionable stuff that will help them remediate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, this has come up multiple times, actually within the last couple of weeks, you know, it, in my like day job, right. What is the fact that um, we've got a lot of tech. I run into a lot of companies that have tech in place for, for static analysis, for dynamic scanning, for whatever it is that they're actually doing, but they don't have, I they don't have the other pillars that they need to actually consume that, right? So to introduce that, security team implements something, but they haven't—they're not passing it off to the developers, or they are in a manner that the developers don't understand what it is. To go back to that point, but it always comes down to this idea of people, process, and then technology. And for some reason, we have this uh, inherent need in the security space to jump on technology first without figuring out what the process and the people are that need to be involved. Um, the, good, the good organizations start with that in place and, or the, I guess, mature organizations, I shouldn't say good organizations, right? Um, but the mature organizations realize that if you don't have the people and process in place, it doesn't matter what that technology is and how good it is because it's never going to make it into the cycle of the release and being able to improve the security of a, of a product, right?
2: Yeah, I think look, it's you know, <laughs> uh, even before I started with application security, when I was in like more software testing, so I was at a company called Mercury that was again bought by HP. I, I seem to be be acquired by HP twice already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even <laughs> in software testing, um, it it was the same thing. Like initially, if you look at the market and around circa. Ninety nine, two thousand. I'm really going back. Kind of, you can you can see probably my. Uh, quick,
0: uh, <laughs> Don't worry, I make fun of Seth all the time for him being eighty seven <laughs> years old. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, we're,
2: we're, Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're probably coloring your your beard, <laughs> Kim. Um, I've got white in it, but it's not, I'm not zoomed in enough for you to see it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, even then, uh, if you look at. The magic quadrant in two, about two thousand, I think, or even two thousand two, for software testing tools, quality, not not security. There was a magic again, Gartner, and whether you follow Gartner or not, I think a lot of people kind of nowadays less, especially in AppSec. I think follow it less, <laughs> uh, but it still is a representation of the old kind of mentality. And uh, if you look at the Gartner Quadrant for regular software testing, initially was application security, uh, sorry, application quality testing or something like this, or automated testing. I can't remember, whatever the magic quadrant was, it was focusing on just the testing element. And then at some point, I think 2004, as the the, uh, industry matured, Even the analysts kind of figured out wait a second, the testing side is important, but that's not the only thing that we need. And so they expanded that magic quadrant to application lifecycle management. Like, how do you, and that means how do you manage the requirements through the testing, through the, you know, the production? How do you verify in production that the application still does what it does um, and manage that whole process? And a lot of people ask them to think about observability and and you know like regular software testing. I know we're we're kind of moving a little bit out of security, but I think yeah. i really I'm really seeing the security testing kind of following almost the same path as, as right now, it's interesting to see that if you go to Gartner, there's a application security testing magic quadrant, and they still publish it, and to be honest, nothing really changed on it other than some vendors moving from here to there but it still focuses on the how many tools can we run, you know, DAST, RASP, IAST, (laughs) SAST against uh, how many languages we have. And that is the the way that they actually measure those tools in that quadrant. And maybe that's a fair assessment for someone who's doing uh, professional security testing, like a pen tester that needs that coverage. But then again, that's not really a real good measure of are those tools good for you? Because again, the biggest issue is communication. We talked about it. It's the process and people. How do you then communicate all these? If Even if you found the best result through those scanners, how do you communicate it to the developers and how do you keep track on that and how do you manage that communication? That That's really important. And so... I honestly think that at some point in time, they're probably going to merge that magic quadrant with the DevOps magic quadrant, which is more kind of think about it, like from security testing to how do you do application security engineering? And that's a different practice. And and yet you can have security testers doing their own thing and they'll, they will still need to use burp and other tools to verify that nothing kind of goes through the crack from an assurance point of view, but you need to meet the developers where they are at, which is in the platforms. And of course that's self-serving a little bit for me, but I, I am seeing a lot of customers are saying, you know what? Yeah. Good enough is, is better than trying to find a perfect scanner if it's disconnected and then I need to bring it in and then it throws mm-hmm. a lot of issues on me, etc. That That's what I'm kind of seeing. And wh- whether you're on, to be honest, whether you're on GitHub or, um, and that, that's another thing that is interesting. We recently took the same kind of approach in the Azure DevOps area. So I don't know if a lot of people know, but um, oh ADO, so, yeah. So so GitHub obviously is is, is part of Microsoft, and um, in the ADO world, there hasn't really been a lot of development in general on the platform. But what we've seen, so a lot of customers were like, well, if I'm on ADO, Microsoft and GitHub, I guess, were trying to say, look, the North Star is really GitHub. But then you have a lot of customers that are on ADO. That's, you know, that's their platform. They're not going to move because that's We have they, some of the viewers go. that are definitely on ADO for what it's worth. And and for very good reasons. There, there could be data sovereignty. There could be just, just moving the pipelines is not really, you know, not really kind of viable. Or... Uh, the whole ecosystem is on on Azure. And so it actually makes sense for them to, to stay on the ADO. And then if they needed application security, they had to go somewhere else to do that. And so we took the same tools that we have or similar tools, like from a secret scanning and code scanning and dependencies, and we brought them natively into, into the Microsoft ecosystem. And the it's early days, I have to say, <laughs> it needs quite still a lot of work. It's still in public beta. But I've had maybe about 100 discussions with different customers of ADO, at least in this region, especially, especially in government, at least in this area. And everyone's excited. Everyone's saying like, yeah, we don't want to manage our own tools. And here I can just click on a button, and it will start getting me some results. That's great. Um, so I think there's a lot of interest to, to get yeah, it might not be the best scanning, but I'm I'm happy with just sorting out kind of the you know the the basic stuff, and that will get me into a much better um, risk uh, risk posture.
0: I wanted to address a couple of things. Um, so going back to the magic con- quadrant, you had mentioned that, uh, like you know, typically unless you're a consultant, you'll you won't see a ton of languages. I think there are scenarios that that's not sure if you're a practitioner, but there's a problem still. So even if like maybe your company does have a lot of different tech stacks and languages, which those companies exist, those companies are usually the ones that are like, by the time everybody's like started to use Node.js, like they're already on to say something different. I don't know. We'll just throw something out, Rust, whatever it might be. And while people are migrating off to Rust, they're off to the next thing that's the real issue too there is that those like those tools aren't set up to just, I mean, you have to have people that do all the research and build all the rule packs and, you know, you have to configure the tune and tune and configure the tooling for whatever that new tech stack is. So like even in i I'm just kind of agreeing with you and adding, there's also this scenario that occurs pretty often or at least enough that I've heard about or seen myself. And it's like, Pretty much the bane, and I think Semgrep has done. I'll give credit to Semgrep here. Um, I think they've done a good job in trying to be somewhat uh agnostic. Um, they cover a lot of different uh language stacks. Not that's not the, necessarily the point, but I, I do agree with you that that quadrant. And actually, I'm trying to set up a poll right now. This is my other point I wanted to mention to you. I'm actually trying to set up a poll right now to see who in our Slack, it, like what percentage of people actually do pay attention to Gartner and the magic quadrant because I actually am curious. Like, I don't know if people generally generally care about it. I know I never have. Not once. I I would love to see. I I can tell you now, even as a vendor, to be honest, like
2: initially, like in the, in my early days, of course, I think also in like early 2000, like Gartner was the thing (laughs) and everyone looked at the magic quadrant with like, yeah, I need to see it. And now I meaning application security literally I can pull out the 2009 one and this one and it hasn't changed much it has changed a little bit maybe 2009 to 2010 they moved it from static analysis metric quadrant to application security testing but there's no there's nothing really new in it and when i ask customers i've had i think one <laughs> that told me yeah, if you guys are not on the leader's quadrant, I can't kind of look at you and I'm like, okay, well maybe you're not the right customer for me because if you're trying to tick the boxes, that's fine, but what what do you care about? Like what what what's important to you? <laughs> and so, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see if if a lot of your viewers
1: are looking at Gartner or not. I'd be
2: really keen to hear that.
1: Yeah, I- I mean, it might be interesting, Ken, to expand it out from that, right? Like, okay, are you paying attention to it, and are there others in your organization that are, right? Because, um, as a, you know, as practitioners, uh, we have a tendency to want to bake off things ourselves, and like, hey, does this fit for the environment that I'm in as a consultant or as a, you know. ProdSec engineer, or whatever it is. So I don't necessarily refer to those like magical quadrants or whatever, you know, like what's coming from Gartner. Um, but there are usually others in the organization that are driven more by that sort of independent analysis, right? Um, executives. I, I mean, how many times have you seen a tool pulled in because they read about it in, you know, whatever recent Gartner report? And Hey, this is what we should be using because Gartner says it's up and coming. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting to see who's affected by it versus who's actually watching it. That's all.
0: All right. I as, am, Ken,
1: uh, as Ken builds it out. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. I'm literally
0: building it out right now. So I'm curious. Uh, I'll keep it open. Um, uh, yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah. You know, I'll be honest. Like it, I, you know, as a consultant, I run across it here and there, but it really doesn't affect my day-to-day that much, right? Um,
2: I mean, there's some yeah. good information there, but if you're making the decision based on, like, uh, is this vendor in this quadrant or not, I think that's that's a problem. And the other thing is I really think that it's time for the industry also to to think, like, is is application security testing the most important thing or do you want to push... Your platform vendors to bake in more security features early to give the engineers kind of the tools that they need, and I, th- I, I honestly think we need to. I mean, I know GitHub is is putting a tremendous amount, and now now Microsoft as well, uh, putting a tremendous amount of of work towards adding more security features, and we are constantly rethinking how. One, how to actually model it, how to price it, how to kind of uh, structure it. And so, whatever we're doing now doesn't necessarily mean it's going to continue. But as an example, um, can I say that Dependabot is the best SEA tool in the world? No, but it's free with the platform. And so, if you have nothing else, turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because it's going to be better than doing nothing. And so, I'd, I'd say, you know, like you're getting it with the platform. Why would you not use it if you don't have anything else? Now, if it, if you tried it and it doesn't meet your needs because, I don't know, whatever, it's too chatty or too much problems or you want to look at it kind of in a different way, that's fine. Add another tool if you, if you think you need kind of a better option. But now you don't really need to, like, you know, like if, if it does 80% of it, is it actually worth you focusing on trying to get another tool and integrating it and then confusing your developers because you're giving them another experience and another dashboard, that's that's the issue.
1: Yep, yep. Well, and I I mean, to your point, right? Like I've had those discussions with clients that I work with on, hey, do we really like, we've got, we're all in on GitHub and Dependapod is already reporting us this like, do we need to go out and get a sneaker, you know, another SEA tool to actually analyze these vulnerabilities? And that's the discussion that we have is, is it worth the effort? Not, Not only just like the cost of the tool, in addition to, you know, you've already paid for the GitHub platform, but is it worth the effort that's going to take to build something else into it? Or should you take those funds and apply them somewhere else, right? Um, because it's not it's not always just that base cost of what it is that you're paying for it's also engineering effort it's time to maintain it's time to integrate um it's the you know that you know the the whole ability there so i i like the i like the idea of of doing away i i mean honestly like for years i've been saying that penetration testers are just glorified q a testers right and for some reason like they're better paid they you know they're very specialized in what they do but and and ken's heard this multiple times from me but realistically they probably are worse at their job as a qa tester than most qa testing testing agencies are qa testers actually are because they're trained to actually do a full scope test and whatever okay so now i'm on a soapbox but um on the flip side right like that's that's where it goes to is we focused this like whole quadrant on application security testing when that should be baked into other products that we already use or other organizations or other tools right like why do i have a specific qa test tool for security when i could just take my security payloads and put them into this qa tool like You know j runner or whatever it is and actually get the same input and the same output for everything that i've already supported and i've already built
2: i think i think what kind of um uh, i'm I'm not i'm not working for gartner or, or, or to be honest i don't really know that a lot of people are kind of looking at it but i think the category if you take a step back shouldn't be just the application security testing tool but it's application security engineering. How do you do it from the start all the way to, and Ken said it really well, like how do you actually get it into production? Like in production, how do you validate that your applications are still, you know, maintained and running well and are in a, in a good state? And uh, yeah, and taking that information back into the development stream from, uh, from, from that point of view is, is actually gonna be really important. As an example, I think there's a lot of opportunity and, and it's not an easy one to do, but think about it this way. Like when you run static analysis, you find all the issues in an application and now you have a list of things. The question is, and, and some of them may be more critical than others, but they're still, it, it's information that you can, if you have um, unlimited time and money and, and effort, you can address all of them, but that's not the case. If you have limited time and money, you need to prioritize which one is the really, really important ones to focus on. And so how do you prioritize it? Well, really the priority should be based on likelihood and impact on the application in production. And so imagine we could bring information from a running application in production I mean, ideally, we obviously sort it out before it even gets to production. But the the reality is that we almost always have, unless you're building a brand new application, you're a brand new startup, like Kenny can probably do it in his one. But most organizations have already kind of a, a brownfield of applications that are already running in production. And so the question is, can you actually scan those in production, see what's reachable, what's you know, and then bring that context back to the developers so that they know how to um, or even to the appsec team so that they know how to prioritize and then give it to the developers in the right way. And I think that would be pretty cool, um, maybe based on you know if you have a micro segmentation policy for applications and you can you know which applications are deployed where. And what's reachable and you can bring it back to development that that could be pretty cool I think uh, to to help with prioritization
0: yeah especially in a distributed architecture for sure like I kind of that kind of stuff would be very very valuable it's always kind of a difficult one it's tying the two worlds together um but yeah I agreed that's very nice and I did post in a, a link here kind of as an aside uh, you guys had mentioned kind of unit testing and security-focused kind of testing in general. That's what this new thing that's out, um, Cherry Bomb, helps with. So if listeners want to try it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it's pretty new, um, I think. Yeah,
1: pretty it looks pretty new. Awesome. API specifications written in Rust, sweet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, see, I I told you. Everybody moves on to something new soon enough. Mm (laughs)
1: Everything old is new or everything old is new again, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So when you interface with people, Shlomi, like, is it a mixture of you talking to developers, uh, talking to C-suite, talking to practitioners? Like, who's your kind of, what's the breakdown for, and then as a follow-up, you know, what are their main kind of complaints these days about Um, not just tooling, but just, their job in relation to security? It's a, it's a good question. It, it, it
2: can, we can do it probably in an episode just on that, but <laughs> generally, on speaking, that. <laughs> um, generally speaking, think about it this way. Like uh, well, I guess when, when we're in GitHub, <clears throat> we um, naturally start talking to, um, I think it just happens just because that's how it is, we tend to usually talk to the platform owners, like to the people in the organization that own the GitHub platform, um, like all the, the admin of it, et cetera. And they may or may not, generally, they're not the ones who are responsible for either the engineering side or the security side. And so often, I think when when I joined, they, they, sometimes they are, but a lot of times they're kind of like the, the people that water and feed the platform they they look after kind of like the user onboarding and the configuration in the platform and yes they are interacting with both of them but often they they kind of look after the platform itself and so i think often um they are the proxy though for all the kind of requests so so engineering teams different engineering teams kind of will go to them and will ask them questions about it and also the security teams will go and kind of interact with them and so often they're the best place for us to start with the discussion. Um, But often they don't really know kind of that. They don't do the day-to-day application security challenges. And so it's really important. And when I work with my colleagues, it's really important for us to kind of ask those platform owners to connect us also to the engineering team and the AppSec teams together. And it's almost like my job is almost 100% marriage counseling. (laughs) It's being able to... (laughs) Together um and start talking uh oh look there, there's i 'm um, not talking about every organization, some are doing it amazingly well um, but I think in the more traditional finance and banking and the more regulated ones that have done it for a while and they I think they need a lot more help <laughs> on the on the counseling side um, but often we, when we bring them in the, the again the challenges like the the engineering team often says, look, we just have like too many tools, it's it's too many results and uh, it's just too different. And, and the information that we get often is pretty much false positives. So we, what they're saying in other words is like, we lost confidence that what we're getting is really actionable. Mm-hmm. And then when we're talking to the security team, they're like, well, you know, like whatever we're doing it's it's really difficult and the engineers don't really adopt it and we're trying to do this and and it it varies it depends really a little bit about the maturity of the security team the more mature ones know that they have to be working with the developers uh, almost like more carrot than stick and the yeah. ones that are less less mature are focusing on the stick rather than the carrot and so i think that's that's kind of really interesting to see and I mean, when you talk to the executives, generally it's about um, speed to market. Like how do we, you know, get applications faster to market with less friction? That's, that's basically the bottom line. So that, that's kind of the, the conversation there. And one really interesting kind of area that now brings all of them together is we, we've had some incredible kind of um, success and also interest around GitHub Copilot. And I think there's now a lot more other options out in the market to do kind of AI pair programming. And I think we talked about it a little bit last time. Um, That's a really interesting conversation because now what I'm seeing is a lot of customers are asking us, well, if you guys are suggesting blocks of code or how to build unit test cases, like if, if this tool can help build my unit test cases or document my code, well, what are the opportunities here to also become almost like a security AI pair programmer, like someone that will basically, you are my security assistant. So instead of an AppSec engineer telling me to do the basic stuff, what if my coding helper can help me kind of do stuff the right way? And so um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there and we are working, I can tell you now, there's, there's quite a few projects in that side um, at GitHub uh, but just to give you an idea, like in, in GitHub Copilot, we pretty much really released the, the early kind of innings or the early stuff into it. For example, looking at hard-coded passwords. So if Copilot, while you're writing, can find hard-coded password and then tell you before or even suggest ways on how to do your authentication authorization the right way, that that's a win. It's not okay. It's not going to solve everything, but it means that as an appsec engineer, I don't need to worry about every single small thing. I have a way to scale my knowledge out to the engineers. So I think there's a lot of a lot of interest, and I, I think a lot of potential there. We're not there yet, by no means. Also,
0: that is that is in line with back going back to the very one of the very first things you said is that you know training for developers and scaling that all out is not. It's not going great. Something like that is actually great training. It's literally pair programming, like alongside you as you're writing code. So that is the best training in a real scenario. Um, Anyways, so just that's interesting. (laughs) That's my takeaway. And
2: training. That's the other thing. Like what I'm seeing is with training, uh, a lot of customers like like have tried their the either the you know the the general programs where they kind of onboarded developers and then they have to go through this whole series of training and that's or uh or maybe the gamified platforms or those kind of things and they're, they're important there's there's definitely a role there but the question is like how much knowledge do you retain after you've done that you probably retain some of it but really the best time to learn for people is when they actually do some mistake and then they get that notification at that point in time, which is relevant, not not just bullshit. And so I think that's, you know, like the, the lot of the customers have asked us, is there a way to almost like think about it, like teachable moments where when you actually make the mistake, you can learn more about that mistake at that point in time, when it's relevant, it's interesting for you, you know, you're not moving on to the, the next thing. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I don't think it's going to replace the, general training that you do and especially um one thing that is really really interesting i was actually speaking to call comfort for from Gala, and i know uh, kenny you you talked to him and we were just chatting about it and one of the things that we're seeing is that customers are being more put off by the general high-level platforms that do training and they want to do in house training that is more interesting. Back to, it's interesting. It's kind of like when full circle. Yeah, we'll circle. <laughs> and now people are, are finding a lot more value when they can sit around with experts like yourselves and see, like, you know, hear the practical stuff and, and, and yep. ideally face to face, but even if not, it's more tailored to them. They can talk about it. It's, it's a lot more engaging and it's a lot more interesting. So I think something like this, plus maybe the AI pair programmers to bring in the kind of the more mundane, um, boring stuff at the right time, I think is really, really
1: interesting. Oh,
0: I know a couple of people who do training. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I
1: don't
0: know. Well, and no, no, so to no, no. that point, point. Is really funny. Yeah.
1: yeah. And to that point, so I mean, like we've been seeing more interest on the training side as a consultant, right? Where we do customize, right? Like, oh, you're having problems with XSS or whatever, or authorization. So we're going to focus on that. We're going to talk about the specific framework language that you're using, the patterns that you've developed internally, and have that discussion on what we found in your assessments with, like, actually the developers to give them that, um, that background and that knowledge base. So um I, I you're absolutely right like i i i like the convergence of what is happening with the ai with the expert opinions and yeah i, I mean i think it's just going to grow from there um along those lines though before we go too much further we have been talking for an hour again these go by so quickly right um Shlomi, where can people find you online what are your plans coming up um you know, if they want to con- continue the conversation with you, and then we're going to have to do a follow up yet again to talk about you know more of this. But yeah, where can they they find you?
2: Awesome. So, um, so I guess the the more from a more professional side for the ones who are in the corporate, obviously I'm on LinkedIn, but I think that probably the the easiest way for the listeners on this podcast is to to reach out to me on the on the Slack. I'm on the Slack in Absolute AppSec. I love that that place. Um, I'm on Twitter, or I guess now it's X, I, I will always call it Twitter for some reason. <laughs> yeah. um, I love that, but I, I'll kind of more look at uh, things like trading and investment generally kind of on Twitter, less the security side, but I do follow quite a few people there. Uh, but yeah, I, I would um, I'd most likely love to to kind of talk about AppSec. I think to me, it's one of the most interesting areas uh in general in IT and, and specifically in security. I've done a lot of other stuff and that's that's something that I'm pretty passionate about.
1: Yeah. I, obviously, right. Like I, I mean, honestly, it feels like we're just sitting around having drinks and talking about what we're seeing in the industry, which is great, right? Like that's that that's the the whole point of what we're doing here. But it's um it does feel like we, you know, we barely scratched the surface and it's been an
0: hour, right, Ken? Yes, it has. Yes, it, it always goes super fast. I try to tell people that. It just, it yeah, speeds by. But anyways, yeah. great company.
2: This is the value of like your podcast is just amazing. Like it's just a, such a good medium for just general conversations that are not like baked in. Like it's not that we haven't even talked <laughs> two minutes before before we got online. We we're like, hey, hey guys, how are you doing? Like we haven't actually prepared or did like a well, what do we want to talk about? Right, it just came.
0: first of all thank you for telling us how great we are we will accept any compliments people want to give us uh no but uh jokes aside i we we did try to do uh, at the beginning a little bit more scripted of a thing and it it's just so forced and it's not fun and we'd rather just keep it organic yep yep
1: well good um any last minute thoughts before we go ahead and, and close this out uh for today or for this episode and then we'll we'll work on scheduling the next one shlomi any final thoughts Um, advice
2: there's a a lot of i I think i think we talked about last time this this is a marathon that that's the thing like there's no end goal (laughs) for appsec and so i think it's a it's a tough it's a tough role it's a tough job and it's it's it the burnout can can happen there i've seen quite a lot of people after three four years having a burnout but I think it's honestly one of the most important uh, areas, kind of in the market, and if if there's something that kind of can be pretty positive, think about it this way: out of all, so if you think about the market in security, security market is about estimated about two trillion kind of potential. That's by McKinsey. AppSec, according to uh, Forrester, is about six billion now. But it's scheduled to, uh, the, the market itself is looking to grow to about $13 billion. So I think the opportunity for practitioners, and that's, that's in the next two years, it's actually the fastest uh, subcategory in security, uh, fastest growing subcategory in security in the next two years. And so there's a lot of effort on it. There's a lot of focus on it. And I think it, for a lot of years, in fact, probably 10 to 12 years, it's just kind of been living in the shadow. It's been a lot more interesting to do, I don't know, phishing attacks because everyone thought about it or ransomware or, you know, digital forensic stuff. But I think now it's going to be super, super important. And the market is actually starting to grow at the fastest rate. So people that have stuck it out, I think are going to get, you know, they're going to be paid some dividends and, and it's going to be a really high demand area to be. And I can not see how engineers are not going to be able to not do it. So I think that there's a lot of interest in that space. That was a lot of last minute words, but, but that, yeah. that's. Yeah. No, nope, That's great. You.
1: Yeah. We appreciate it. We appreciate you taking the time. Um, thanks to the listeners that uh, stuck with us for a, you know, off hours or off normal schedule, um, event, but, um, yeah, find us online. Join us next week for the CTF. And Ken, any final thoughts, things that you
0: wanted to bring up? I am going to pin that poll, if I can here, into our Slack. And on Tuesday, when we reconvene for a regularly scheduled episode, we'll cover the results. Okay. Sounds good. All
1: right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks again, Shlomi. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And we will see you all online.
2: Thank you, guys. See ya.